Will you pray with me? Oh, Lord, it is just so wonderful to know that, that you died for us and you also live for us. Everlasting life and light you freely give. And, Lord, we thank you that our hope is in you, that you gave yourself for us, that you paid the price for all of our sin at Calvary, and that your grace has planned it all. It's incredible. And our only hope is found in you. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us to believe and recognize your incredible work of love for us. And, Father, we are just utterly dependent on you to help us understand this passage this morning. Would you come in your power, soften our hearts, and would you transform us by your spirit? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to review a little bit first. Uh, Paul has been arguing that the Galatians do not have to be circumcised in order to be in the family of God. And what have been some of his main points? Let's go back to chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And he asked a lot of questions, right? He said, how did they receive the Spirit? Did they need the law? Did they need circumcision to be saved? No, right? Paul was telling him that it was foolish. It was, it was idiotic to think that they could begin by faith and then continue on in their own effort. No, they began by the, the Spirit and all of the life is by the Spirit. So all of the life is through faith, by the Spirit, and not by what we do. And then we got to verses 6 through 9. The requirement of to have the blessing of being in Abraham's family. What's the requirement to be in Abraham's family? Faith, right? You believe like Abraham. You are the children of Abraham. And Last week, we talked about what if you insist on relying on the law for righteousness? You are cursed. That's right. We all fail at keeping the law. It's impossible. And who is the only one who obeyed that law perfectly? Jesus, right. And we are counted righteous because we have his righteousness. Then in verses 10 through 12, because we all fail, we're cursed. We all deserve the curse. And who is the one who bore that curse for us? Jesus, right? He is our Redeemer. So then our only hope, our hope is in the Lord as we sang, trusting in Jesus and his death on the cross. He redeemed us from the curse of the law. So now we come to one of the passages that the Apostle Peter described this way. Let me read it for you. Our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks of them, of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So we are in good company this morning, aren't we, with some things that are hard to understand. Even Peter found it hard to understand. One commentator wrote that there are, there may be 300 different interpretations for verse 20, verses 19 and 20. And John Piper said, He's not quite sure what it means either. So, but don't let that scare you, because if we really want to know God, if we really want to love him, we're not going to shy away from texts that are hard. We're going to dig in and see what we can learn about God, and we're going to joyfully dig in. So hang on, I'm going to walk through this passage, and then we're going to go back through the passage, and I'm going to trace a couple of key themes or threads that are woven throughout. So the first thing that we're going to go talk about is verses 15 through 18, the promise and law. All right, the promise and law. Paul takes us back to the Old Testament and to Abraham. And 
I'm wondering if, you know, remember we're listening to one side of a phone conversation here in this letter, and I'm wondering if perhaps there was a Bible study going on in Galatia and they were wrestling with some questions. And some of their questions might have been, well, is salvation by trusting in God's promise or is it by obeying the law? Is it by grace or is it by works? Or perhaps there's a subtle twist to the gospel that was going on, like maybe we start by grace through faith alone, but surely the law has a role and we've got to add obedience and law-keeping to what Jesus has already done for us. After all, Abraham was saved by faith, but then through the promise, but, well, God added the law later, so did the law change everything? Maybe it's the same for us. Begin by faith, but add our performance. Can you imagine some of the questions that might have been swirling in the church in Galatia? And I think we hear some of those same questions today, don't we? We've already seen Paul's answer, but he's continuing his logical argument, and we almost need to map it out to get the flow. He starts with God's gracious covenant to Abraham and how foundational it is to everything that followed, including the law. And notice how Paul addresses them here. Back in verse 1, what did he call them? Fools, right. And he asks a series of questions aimed at shocking them back to the truth. And here he calls them brothers, right. So he starts by giving a human analogy, an example, a legal analogy of a contract. And when two people have a binding agreement, a contract, it's against the law for a third party to come in and to, to demand a change, to cancel it. Well, so 400 years before the law was given, God made a binding contract, a covenant with Abraham. So we're going to look at a little bit more detail into this covenant this morning. And you studied this in, in Genesis 15 this week. Well, God had just announced this covenant with Abraham, or Abram was his name then, promising an heir and innumerable offspring, and Abraham believed, and then he was counted righteous. And then he asked, well, how am I going to know? And so God said, okay, we'll have a covenant ceremony. And so he said, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half, and when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And R.C. Sproul said of the next verse, Genesis 15, 17, that this was his all-time favorite verse. I think he said if he had to mention his favorite chapter of the Bible, it would be Romans 8. And, you know, I mean, he went on, but he narrowed it down, and he said, this is my all-time favorite verse. Listen. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. <laughs> you know? People picked like John 3.16 or, or Romans 8.38, you know, is it, but no, R.C. Sproul said this is his favorite verse. 
And then he went on to explain why. Because, I mean, I was confused, too. And when I first heard this, I can even remember where I was raking leaves in my front yard. Because I thought, that's crazy. How could this be his favorite verse? Well, listen to the rest of it. When the sun had gone down and, and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This sounds a little bit bizarre, doesn't it? But this Old Testament drama made sense to Abraham, and it made sense to the audience that was reading Genesis. The Hebrew word covenant actually comes from a root word, which means to cut. It's a cutting, and it was a reference to the ancient custom of cutting or dividing animals into two parts. And then the two parties that were making this agreement, this binding contract, they would walk between these pieces. You know, there's a bloody path, but the pieces were on either side. And as they walked through, by this action, what they were saying is, if I fail to uphold my end of this agreement, may this happen to me. May I be literally torn apart. So in Genesis 15, what God is saying is here, he's passing between the pieces of animals. This is called a theophany. It's God's, you know, coming, you know, in person Theophanies in the Old Testament are very rare, and the reason they're rare, we, we read in Exodus 33:20 that, you know, you'll die if you see God. That's why these are rare occurrences, it, because it's normally fatal. Well, Abraham was, what was his role? He was asleep. Abraham never walked between the pieces of the animals, right? So God alone was the one that passed through. Again, emphasizing that one-sided nature of this covenant, as well as the ultimate level of commitment to Abram. God put his very deity, his life, his nature on the line as a guarantee. So God was saying in a, in a really graphic way to Abram, if I fail to keep my promise, may I be ripped apart like these creatures. Abram doesn't make that promise. He's sleeping, right? In Hebrews 6, we read this. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. God could swear by nothing greater than himself. So he couldn't say, raise my right hand, hope to die. Okay, R.C. Sproul then went on, and here's a direct quote from him. He said, he would cease to be God if he did not fulfill his part of the covenant. When he puts his deity on the line, what certainty? He vowed his own nature. When I doubt I want to read this passage. Abraham does not walk the gauntlet. It is all one-sided. So now you know why that's his favorite verse. So God does not break his promises or contradict his covenant. God's promise to Abraham is all of grace, and it continues by grace, or it stops being a promise. 
And it seems that these false teachers in Galatia were causing a lot of confusion, elevating the law, often called the Mosaic Covenant, above the promise, which we call the Abrahamic Covenant. Elevating doing above believing, elevating works of the law above grace. But Paul has already argued that faith alone saves and following the Old Testament law can't be added to believing in Jesus. That's not an option. So Paul says in verse 17, the law could never cancel the covenant that God made with Abraham and his offspring. This was, the law was not a new way of salvation that voided God's promise to Abraham. This would be crazy. So you could combine promise and grace and faith, yes, This celebrates God's work in salvation, God's deliverance, God's rescue. But promise plus law? No, because law highlights our performance, our obedience, our checking off the boxes. Tom Schreiner calls it fundamental incompatibility. It is either or, it's not both and. And now in verse 18, Paul mentions inheritance a term we looked at in detail when we studied Joshua. Some of you studied Joshua with us. In the Old Testament, this inheritance mainly referred to land. And remember when the people of Israel were delivered from Egypt, they wandered in the wilderness, and then Joshua was the one that took them into the promised land. Okay, That was, that was their inheritance. And we see that as really pointing us to Jesus who takes us into our inheritance which is salvation, okay? Our inheritance, our salvation, the promise, it comes by promise, it comes by Jesus and not by law. So then the next question we ask is, why the law? Why the law? If the law can't save us, it can't bring us life, it can't make us righteous, then why the law? How does the law fit into God's plan of salvation? And when or where and how does it fit into redemptive history? Well, the law's purpose is to lead us to Jesus. And by the way, Doug Moo defines Paul's usage of the law here as the Torah, which are the first five books of the Old Testament. So it's not just the Ten Commandments that Moses brought down. Uh, it's, it's It's the Torah. But it doesn't include all the extra rules that the Pharisees added on. So does that make sense? Okay, the The Torah. First, the law was added because of transgressions. Schreiner says that the idea is the law was added to produce transgressions. In Romans, Paul says it was to multiply the trespass. Under the law, sin multiplies until we are confronted by our rebellion. Our rebellion is just relentless. Our disobedience just multiplies. Our hearts are hard and we feel that crushing weight of our sin, and the more we try to be good, the guiltier we get, right? We can never earn our righteousness, so we need the law to show us that we are helpless. In Ephesians, Paul puts it like this, that we are dead in our trespasses and our sins, and the law is not our solution. Paul has already stated back in Uh, Galatians 2.21, that if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Also, the law was temporary. It was only in in, in force until Christ. And so, verse 19 says, 
until the offspring should come to whom the promise was made. And then look ahead to verse 22. We were locked up. We were held captive. There was no way out, no hope. And then verse 23 says, until the coming faith would be revealed. And verse 24, until Christ came. We have to look at these difficult verses through the lens of Jesus Christ. Romans 3.20, Paul says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I think it's beautiful the way Romans just kind of expands, almost explodes what he is saying in Galatians. Well, the law was temporary. It had a limited shelf life, and it was intended for Israel, uh, not for Gentiles. Now, I debated whether or not to put this slide in, but Julia convinced me that maybe I should put this in. This is a little timeline of covenants, and a uh, Bible timeline. And what you can see here is that, so first we have Adam. We have God giving a covenant. We call it the Adamic covenant. This is back in Genesis 3 where God first announces the gospel. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. And then we have Noah. And you remember the covenant that God made with Noah not to destroy the earth again by a flood. And then we have the Abrahamic covenant that we've just talked about. And then later we have Moses getting the covenant, which is the law, also called the Mosaic covenant. And then we have a covenant that God made with David, followed by the new covenant here that was announced in Jeremiah 31. What do you notice on this diagram that's different about the law? What's different about the Mosaic covenant? I know I'm blocking it for some. It ends at the cross. Yes, that's right. Jesus has fulfilled the law. And we read, um, you know, we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but, you know, the fact that Jesus fulfills the law is really key here. And Paul is writing at the time when it's post-cross, right? He's writing to the Galatians here. So the law was inferior and the promise was better. And we might ask, well, Paul, how can you say that it was only temporary and it's inferior? Well, verses 19 and 20 are really tough. There's a lot of different views. Like I told you, 300 plus. Actually, one commentator made a joke and said 430 plus <laughs> because that's how many years it was between the promise and the law. But here's my best guess. Okay, God appeared to Abraham in person in a theophany. Remember a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch? That was a one-sided covenant directly made with Abraham while he was sleeping. It was like a will that was made that no one can come in and change because God decided this is, this is the way it's going to be. This is my promise. Okay, but the law was more like a business deal, a contract, a binding agreement between two parties. And Paul says here, God put it in place through angels by an intermediary. In Acts 7, Stephen says when he's before the council, and preaching to them, he says, you received the law as delivered by angels. 
and here's, here's the guess uh, from what I've read in commentaries, that due to sin, angels represented God and Moses represented the people. So the law was given from angels to Moses as you know, they were in the middle. They were mediators of, of the law. And also in this, God also gave the sacrificial system. Do you remember how they were to worship, how their sins were to be forgiven through sacrifices and what the holy days were? And there was the Holy of Holies where only the priest could go. And so all this time in the Old Testament, the people of God had no direct access, right? They were separated by mediators, priests, until Jesus came. Jesus was our high priest. Jesus was also the Lamb of God, offered himself as the once-for-all sacrifice. So the sacrificial system is no longer needed as well. The law was given, you know, personally to Abraham in the covenant, the promise, and his promise depended only on God, not on Abraham. Now at this point, in following Paul's argument, when he asks in verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Didn't you almost expect him to say, yes, <laughs> but what does he say? No, he says, certainly not. So the law was not contrary to the promise. The law is not contrary to the promises of God, but it has a different function. It has a different function. So he goes on to say that the law cannot give life. It never saved from sin. It only convicted of sin. If the law could have saved us, God could have spared his own son Jesus, couldn't he? If the law could have saved us, he, would have, he wouldn't have had to go to the cross to die for us. But at the cross, Jesus took the wrath of God that we deserved. And as we learned last week, Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The law diagnoses or exposes our sin. It reveals it so that we trust in God's promises instead. So then Paul gives us three images here in this section. We are imprisoned under sin. We are captive under the law. We are guarded like a child. All of these highlight the fact that we're not free when we're under the law. We are captive. A tutor would guard and teach minors until they reached adulthood. And you're going to look at this in more detail next week as Jackie brings this next section, okay, in, in Galatians 4. This, the law was like a schoolmaster for the Jewish people, keeping them in line until Jesus came. And as I thought about how to illustrate this, I thought about driving to Bible study while running a bit late, knowing the speed limit, but since everyone else is speeding along, after all, I'm just going with the flow of traffic, right? You join in until you see a state patrol car. And then what does everybody do? Yeah, you put the brakes on. The law has accomplished its purpose there, right? But Paul is not really saying that that's the function of the law here. It's not just saying that it restrains sin. It actually exposes and multiplies sin. Back in Galatians 2, I used the analogy of a diagnostic machine at your doctor's office. The law machine diagnoses or exposes our sick helplessness and our need for grace. And the law also made people sicker and sicker. It couldn't give life. In a sense, the same machine that diagnosed them killed them. And the sicker the patient, 
the more wonderful the doctor is that brings the cure, and that's Jesus. The law was given to make God's promise look really great. Tim Keller wrote, The law has the power to show us that we are not righteous, but it cannot give us the power to be righteous. In fact, as we see God's standards and try and fail to keep them, the law shows us that we do not have that power. And everyone is saved the same way. No one can be saved by obeying the law. Salvation is not based on performance. It's a free gift of grace. The law pointed to Jesus. Once Jesus came, the law was fulfilled. Everything in the Old Testament was a shadow pointing to Jesus. Referring to all the laws and the rituals, Paul wrote in Colossians, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Everything in the law exclaimed, look to Jesus. In Romans 10, Paul wrote, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. He fulfilled the law of Moses, and he showed us that the law was good, but he is the only one who obeyed the law perfectly. So faith in Jesus doesn't eliminate the law in terms of moral requirements, but it takes away condemnation, and it gives us life. It gives new life to us who know that we can't keep the law for salvation, but our obedience flows from faith. It's evidence of the Spirit working in our hearts, in our lives, working to make us more like Jesus. Okay, so now I want to go back. I want to go through this section again, and I want to trace the word offspring. We see this in verse 16, verse 19, and verse 29. Last week I had the opportunity to hear Nancy Guthrie at the Bethlehem Pastors and Leaders Conference, and in her second session, she traced offspring through a good portion of the scriptures. And we don't have time to do a whole Bible overview this morning, but I want to remind you of the gospel that was promised back in Genesis 3. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn. Genesis 3:15 is where God said to the serpent, He said, I will put enmity, that's ongoing conflict between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. So he's saying this to the serpent, okay? So there's offspring of the serpent, and there's offspring of the woman, okay? And God is making a promise that there's going to be ongoing conflict, a battle between the two. And both of these uh, words is a plural form of offspring here. But then God goes on to say, he said, He, singular, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So what's going on here? You've probably heard this promise before. He, singular, is the offspring that Paul is talking about here in, in Galatians 3. Jesus, okay, the ultimate offspring of the woman, you know, through, through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and on and on, to Jesus. Jesus shall bruise your head, the head of the serpent will be crushed, and you shall bruise his heel. We know the end of the story, right? Satan's doom is sure. He's been fatally crushed at the cross. What Nancy told us was sometimes even when a snake is stepped on and the head is cut off, the tail will still move around and cause damage. And we're in that period of time where Satan is still causing all kinds of damage, but we know that the battle is ultimately won because Jesus defeated him at the cross. So next week, you're going to study in Galatians 4, 
verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So Paul is essentially saying here, keep connecting the dots, okay? All the way from Genesis through history, all through redemptive history, there's a promise of the offspring. It's fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the offspring that defeats Satan. It all leads to Jesus. Now, Paul points to Jesus in verse 16 because all the offspring promises in the Old Testament point to him. All the other offsprings failed, but Jesus is the one true offspring of Abraham. Remember in Genesis 15 when God made this promise to Abraham, he ratified the covenant by by moving between these torn apart creatures, okay? And no one had the right to change this covenant, right? It was a one-sided covenant that was made. And we know from this side of the cross who is ultimately torn apart for us. Yes, that's what, that's what Jesus did for us, you know, so that we might have access to him. His body is torn apart. Torn apart. Hebrews 10 tells us, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. So at the cross, Jesus ratified his covenant in his own blood. We hear that language when we have a communion Sunday, don't we? It's by the blood of Christ that God has ratified that new covenant. The, gr- the free grace that was promised to us is in Christ. It can't be added to or changed. Jesus shed his blood on the cross for us, and we dare not add works of the law to what he has done. Jesus died so that we, Gentiles, all nations, might have that promised blessing of God. In John 8, Jesus said to the Jews, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So Abraham had looked forward to this blessing being fulfilled. We look back. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. Well, the law came 400 plus years later, and we see in verse 19, it was added until, what's the word there? Added until the offspring came, right? So until then, we were imprisoned, we were under the guardian. Paul's saying it's crazy to go backwards in redemptive history to the law since Jesus has come. So we've seen that the law could never cancel the covenant that God made with Abraham and his offspring. That was a last will and testament designed to carry out the wishes of the one who makes the will. Heirs receive the benefits just because and not by anything that they do. And so now, who is the mediator of, who is our mediator that stands before us? Jesus is. And, you know, Moses even pointed to Jesus when he said there there would be a prophet like him to come. People would listen to him. He would perform many great signs and wonders. And Jesus is before God face to face. There is one God and there is one mediator mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. That's 1 Timothy 5. So Jesus, being fully God and fully man, 
represents both, so we can meet in him and be reconciled to God. And then Paul goes on, verse 29, and says, Now who are we as a result of our reconciliation? We are Abraham's offspring. Okay, we are Abraham's offspring. We are heirs according to promise. Now we're going to go back through one more time, and I'm gonna, we're going to trace Christ. We're going to trace Christ. First, we see in verse 16 that the promise was to Christ. The promise God made to Abraham, to Christ as well. In verse 19, we see that the law existed until Christ. The law until Christ. And both were fulfilled in Christ. We see that in verses 22 through 25. And now we see a beautiful thing in verse 26. We see our identity in Christ. It's a beautiful, beautiful truth that not only are we declared not guilty or legally justified by faith in Jesus, that we are all sons of God through faith. We're adopted. Paul has just proved his statement that he made way back in verse 7 of chapter 3. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. J.F. Packer wrote this. He said, to be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is a greater thing. We are loved by God our Father. It's just amazing that we benefit from the promises that God made to Abraham. We should be astonished at the power and the authority and the certainty by which we are loved by God. Our God keeps his covenant promises. And you might have pondered this already this week, and it's going to come up again next week, but the reason that Paul uses sons here instead of saying sons and daughters or simply children is that Paul is being very counter-cultural. Because think about how the original audience of women in the church in Galatia would have heard this. Think back to that Bible study that I started with, okay? They're sitting around talking through these things. They would not have seen their, their life. They have very, very few rights as women, and especially not rights to inherit anything. And so when Paul says that when you are in Christ, you are sons and you inherit this was something really beautiful for the women to hear, and it should be beautiful for us as well, that whether we're males or females, we receive the promised blessing by faith. We get to be adopted into God's family. We get the full inheritance of salvation. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians. He says, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So in verse 27, we see that God the judge pronounces us righteous because as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. We have put on the righteousness of Jesus when we're in Christ. What you wear says a lot about you. My grandson wanted to be a UPS driver, and so we bought him a UPS uniform and a little truck that he could drive around. But when he's tired of delivering UPS packages and being a driver, then he switches and he puts on his firefighter gear, and he can be a firefighter. But when you're clothed with Christ, you take on his identity, okay? You take on that identity. We don't 
take, put it on and take it off and put it on and take it off. We, we are in Christ. That is our primary identity. Our identity is not found primarily in culture, history, ethnicity. Paul says neither Jew nor Greek. And it's not about our class or our status, slave or free. It's not about our gender, male or female. But God has provided a covering for us that our identity is we are sons of God. We are his sons. We are adopted. We are in Christ. We have put on his righteousness. And if you go back to Genesis, you realize that God has been providing this covering since Genesis. Do you remember when Adam and Eve sinned and they felt shame? And what did they try to do? Yeah, they tried to cover themselves with leaves, and God said, uh-uh, that's not going to do it. What did he do? <laughs> Killed an animal. That's what would had, had to cover them. That, was, that, too, was a type of what Christ has done to cover us. We need his righteousness covered, covering us. In Isaiah 61, we, we read this. This is Isaiah 61.10, which was a theme verse in women's ministry a couple of years ago. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As believers, we have put on Jesus and we are covered with Jesus' righteousness. And that is our ultimate identity. So finally, I want you to look at some, a bookend that finishes off this section. The words, in Christ. We see this in verse 26. We also see it in verse 28. But the beautiful truth between here is that our identity with Christ leads to unity, unity in Christ. Those who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. We put on a clothing that covers the distinctives or the differences that normally would tend to divide people. By faith, we are united to Christ, and we find a family uh, uh, affinity that's even deeper than our you know, our biological or our blood family. It's why if I go on a mission trip, and I've been to the Philippines many times, I find this dear sisterhood with my believers that I maybe have just met and known for five minutes that's a deep and sweet, you know, that's, that's a sweeter thing than with family here, you know, that are in my life that don't share that in Christness, having put on Christ. We can travel anywhere in the world and find more in common with a fellow believer. The gospel tears down those dividing walls. And what's important here is that we don't need to deny our distinctives, like gender or ethnicity, but our primary identity is in Christ. Our distinctives will remain, but we have a unity in Christ that should be cherished. And last night in the evening group, there was one woman who said, she said, I broke down crying. She said, I started screaming on Saturday as I realized the truth of my identity in Christ. And my husband came running in wondering what was wrong. And she said, with tears in my eyes, I just told him, I finally realized what I have in Christ. So this is a beautiful, beautiful truth. It is sweet. It is, it is a precious truth that we need to hold on to. Everyone who belongs to Christ through faith, we are the true offspring of Abraham and we are heirs according to promise. Our roles, our responsibilities are going to be different, but our value from God's perspective is equal. And we should say with Paul, as he said in 2 Corinthians 5, he said, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, 
We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And how do we live out that reality of our unity in Christ? How does this change the way you see and treat your brothers and sisters in Christ? So I want you to keep pondering this passage and hang on because in Galatians 5 and 6, Paul turns to how we work out this theology in loving and caring for our brothers and sisters and show that we have that profound unity that we have in Christ because we are clothed with his righteousness. We are all one in Christ, and if we are Christ, then we are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Would you pray with me as we close? Thank you, Father, for your amazing love, for your grace. We stand in awe that we can benefit from those promises that you made to Abraham so many years ago. We are astonished at, at the power and authority and the certainty with which you love us. You are a covenant-keeping God. Thank you for all the ways you lead us to Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for your finished work on the cross, for our only hope of righteousness is in you. And thank you that because we are united with you, that we are Abraham's offspring, we are heirs, and we have this profound blood-bought unity with one another. I thank you, Father, for that. Thank you so much. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.